0: Well, I invite you to turn with me today to the book of Joel in your Bibles, the book of the prophecy of Joel. We'll be in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, a little over halfway in your Bibles this morning. It's a joy to be gathered in Jesus' name with you today. Uh, it's a joy to be able to preach this morning as well. So, Chad, thank you, brother, for for this opportunity. Uh, and for those of you that don't know me as well, I'll share just a little bit about myself before we get started. I'm originally from North Carolina, uh, near Charlotte, where I grew up. Uh, it's where my family lives. I love that part of the country, and I've lived in New Orleans now for about a year and a half. My wife Brittany and I moved here right after Christmas in 2019, uh, and then I've been at First Baptist. New Orleans here for just over a year, and it has been a joy to be with you. Uh, we uh, just have a deep, deep love for this city. That's really what brought us here, but we have a deep, deep love for you uh, and for this church. So it's, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, I will say, though, there are some differences between North Carolina and New Orleans, just a few. Um, the biggest one happened really during the quarantine season last year when I spent a lot of time outside because I took up running because I was about to go crazy. But I just started running a lot and spent a lot of time outside. And I quickly realized that the weather is a little bit different here in New Orleans than it was up in the mountains in North Carolina. But I found that over time, as I began to continue running and running, that I kind of got used to it. I got used to the weather and I feel like I'm settled in fairly well here uh, and I realized this because last year around July 4th I went home to North Carolina to visit my family and was enjoying that time up there and I was just taken aback by like it's like cool in the mornings like the, there's not as much humidity and I went for a run at that time it was like the fastest run I'd ever done before because it was so cool and so when my when my parents would ask me like you know how I'm doing, and my family would talk to me, it would always be about the weather. And they're like, why are you talking so much about the weather? I was like, well, this is just, I forgot what it was like, right? And really, I'd become kind of desensitized to the humidity down here, right? And so that's kind of the theme that we're talking about today as we look at the prophet of Joel. There's this, there's this theme of becoming desensitized to certain things. And we see this in our own life. Like sometimes I've, I've spoken to some people even recently with sicknesses, we can become desensitized, even the taste on our on our taste buds. Uh, my body's become desensitized to thousands of calories living in New Orleans, you know. But there are these things that we can just kind of become numb to at times. And that is what we're looking at here in the prophet Joel. Um, in a similar way, Joel is speaking against a type of desensitization. It's a disregard in the people of Judah that, that we experience as well, and it's a disregard at times to sin. What Joel is confronting in this book is the people of God becoming comfortable in their own sin. And so as we look at the minor prophets We often have some way of understanding like when the prophecy was written, like in Hosea when we looked last week, we saw a list of kings that were in power at the beginning of the book. We don't necessarily have that here in the book of Joel. It's kind of unknown to us when it was written, but the message is the same no matter when it was written, both then at that time and in this time now, Joel is calling the people of God to return to their God. So the first chapter of this book opens and we see great devastation on the earth. There's a plague that has swept through the land of of locusts and the harvest has dried up. There seems to be no hope for the people of God at all. Yet in the midst of this devastation, Joel brings a word from God that confronts the true needs of the people. It wasn't agricultural though. He didn't give them the farmer's almanac. He brought a word from the Lord against the sin of the people. So as we look at this, would you stand with me as we read from Joel chapter 2. Verse 11 through 14. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you uh, speak to us today today even through this book, Lord, and you call us to distinct things. Lord, that we would return to you, that we would turn to you as one that is gracious and compassionate, abounding in faithful love. Lord, we thank you that you are that kind of God. So I pray that we would see that, that we would see you as we examine this text today. Lord, be with us. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So the book of the prophet Joel called the people of Judah in their time, and it calls the people of God In our time as well, to three distinct things. And the first is this, the word of the Lord through the prophet Joel calls us to mourn over our sin, to mourn over our sin. There's this theme of mourning all throughout the book of Joel. Turn with me to chapter one, the page before. In verse five, you see, it says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep, wail, all you wine drinkers. There's this theme of mourning coming out. Look again at verse 8. Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. It's saying grieve as a widow even. Looking down, look at verse 11. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. Even down to verse 13. Dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. And then finally, even in verse 14, announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. The theme of mourning. So so why do we mourn? Typically, we mourn because of loss. We mourn because of the loss of a loved one. We can mourn over losing something that's just dear to us. Even what we feel is normal, we we mourn over these things. We mourn over the things that we hold dear. So so what's being lost in Joel chapter 1? Well, first we see in in verse 4 that locusts had actually devoured the land. Look at verse 4. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. So This first passage examines the devastation that came from an attack of locust swarms. Verse 6 describes it as an army without number with the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. And these locusts brought total destruction to the land. The devastation of this army was so great that it depleted the crops and the land didn't produce a harvest. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, the fields are destroyed, the land grieves. Indeed, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the fresh oil fails. So the land is grieving and the people are called to mourn. But there seems to be something more, like something something deeper going on in Joel's prophecy. Locust plagues were not uncommon they they were they were rare but they weren't uncommon in Joel's day agriculture you ask anybody that's in that profession it's a fickle thing and so like having trouble and difficult years in the fields is something that isn't necessarily often but it happens every now and then so why is Joel focusing in so much on these failing crops and on the land and what we see in this passage and throughout this book is that the empty fields are an external indication of an internal reality So as we look, we see that just as the grapevine had been devastated, so had the heart of God's people been devastated as well. And just as the fields had been destroyed, so had the heart of Judah been destroyed as well. Just as the grapevine had been dried up, so had the heart of God's people been dried up. Because Judah had fallen far from its covenant relationship with God. They were in sin. And this is no small fact. It's not something to gloss over. This is actually a matter of life death. It's a matter of peace and tribulation. It's a matter of true satisfaction and total suffering, and it serves as a warning for us today. Because the the curses that we see from God's word through Joel are not these random, angry outbursts from a God that's throwing a tantrum. They're, They're actually rooted in Leviticus 26, all the way back in the book of the law. So here we see that God graciously outlines for his people the effects of them living in obedience to him and the effects of them living in disobedience to him. Obedience would bring blessing and joy in their relationship with God and disobedience, turning from that relationship would naturally bring pain and hardship. And so in the final promise of the curse, God tells his beloved people, he says this, and if in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility towards me, I will act with furious hostility towards you. So the plague of locusts and the desolations of the land are pointing the people to the recognition that God was bringing judgment on his people in the day of the Lord, just like he had promised. He was disciplining them as a child. And the day of the Lord is, is really this prominent theme through Joel, that Joel is giving a warning even to us today. And the thought of it just seems to consume the book. So, so the day of the Lord is really a day of judgment. Turn with me to chapter three of, of Joel, In chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, it says, Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So this, this promised day for Joel is it this imminent day of judgment against God's people, so that God would discipline his children. And it's also looking forward to a final day of judgment against all nations. Verse 14: Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. But the effects of the day are are twofold. Here, here are the outcomes that we get. It's a day of destruction for the resistant. For those that would resist God, it is a day of destruction, but it's a day of salvation for the repentant. So so we see that the day of the Lord is not this day of political overthrow because in the gospels, that was kind of a misconception that when Jesus would come, that he would come with a sword in his right hand to defeat the Roman empire. And yet when Jesus came, it was a sword from his mouth that would convict the people of sin. So ultimately, this day of the Lord that we see in this passage is the successful and continual completion of God's plans to bring salvation to his people. And so the day of the Lord fulfills what we saw all the way back in Leviticus 26, that God would discipline his people in order to direct them to his covenant and to his relationship with him, in order that God's righteous and perfect will would be brought to completion. And so this, this book is just bursting forth with, with the anticipation of that day. And it's with this understanding of the day of the Lord, with judgment simmering in the background that Joel writes this, this prophecy, because the people of God had just become comfortable in their sin. They needed a jolting reminder of God's promises and curses against rebellion and blessing towards peace, towards repentance. And we too need a reminder to mourn over our sin today not simply because of the threat of destruction, the threat of bad things on those that reject the word of the Lord. And we're not called to be like a child like I was, that was just afraid if I got caught, that was just repentant if I got caught. We're called to mourn our sin because of the realization that we have denied our God in our sin. The God that loves us and cares for us is denied by us. And so you see, the passage that I read earlier in Leviticus 26 of cursing was preceded by this gracious promise, a blessing for those that would just draw near to God. He promises to bless his people if they would follow his statutes and faithfully observe his commands. In Leviticus 26.9, he says, I will turn to you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. We serve a faithful God who's also a faithful judge. So I ask you today, do you, do you mourn your sin? Or have you like so many before you and like me at times, become just comfortable even with the weight of our iniquity? Do you recognize the the eternal significance that our sin brings, as Joel is calling us to realize today, or do you become comfortable with sin in your life? See, other prophets in Scripture address a similar theme. As we look at Hosea last week, we saw that there was a sin of political idolatry of worshiping the government before God. Amos calls out the exploitation of the vulnerable when we really are worshiping ourselves before God. Obadiah calls out violence and boasting and gloating, and what we see in these warnings are not just a warning to people that were on the earth thousands of years ago, but they're a warning to us today for the same sins. And Joel calls us today to mourn our sin because God knew that we are prone to become comfortable in our rebellion, comfortable in living and loving a political party before our God, comfortable in exploiting the vulnerable and pursuing ourselves before we love our God. Comfortable in violence, even even comfortable in, in piercing words towards others that destroy before seeking the word of the Lord. And comfortable even in boasting, comfortable in preaching ourselves before Christ and Him crucified. So, when was the last time you really dwelt on this truth? Like, I certainly prefer to dwell on the love of God because we serve a God of love. I certainly prefer to dwell on the power of God because He is the God of power. And I, I prefer to dwell on the goodness and the grace. And the mercy of God. And we should because he is good and he is gracious and he is merciful. That is the God that we serve. But today through the prophet Joel, God's word calls us to mourn over our sin. Not, not just personally, but even corporately as the body of Christ. Do we recognize the weight of our sin and the danger of becoming comfortable in our sin? Becoming comfortable in our daily sins against God. So, so both personally and corporately, the first call in, in, the, in the word from Joel is to mourn over our sin. But the second call from Joel moves on even further, is to respond in repentance. We are called to mourn our sin and respond in repentance. As God's people, we are not able to be in this perpetual, or we shouldn't be in this perpetual state of mourning. We actually have a hope from the word. In fact, this is even uh, in this piercing prophecy of Joel, there is hope in the word. So look with me at verse 11 of chapter 2. Verse 11 says, the Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? This is the climax of it all. Joel is addressing the devastation on the land and and calling the people to remember the day of the Lord and saying, no one can endure it. We're unable to endure the wrath from God on our own. But the next two words that we see are, are just, they're filled to the brim. Like they're busting forth. It's just like this this pregnant verse of hope. It's just giving us hope today. So, what are these words? Look at verse twelve. Even now, even now, when it seemed like destruction was all that remained, and when it seemed like the weight of sin on God's people was impossible to re- remove, there's this glimmer of hope in two words: even now. We love seeing this kind of hope in two words. If you are an Avengers fan, you know exactly what this is. In the last movie, at the final battle of Earth, you see Captain America, and he's doing everything that he can. He's just got a couple other Avengers with him. He's fighting. He's pulling out all the stops. He's doing every move he can do. He picks up Thor's hammer. Didn't even know he could do that. He starts fighting as best he can against their biggest enemy, Thanos, and then it just doesn't seem to be enough. Like, it seems like you're just... He just keeps getting beat down, keeps getting beat down, and you begin to start losing hope. And there's that final scene where Captain America is just standing there like, all right, I guess, I guess this is it. Here we go. And yet in just a few words, hope fills the room. Like in, in this moment in the theaters, like people like gasped. they start cheering, right? Because you heard in the background, Falcons say, on your left, right? And this portal is open and just armies of people just came out, right? And we're ready to fight on that last day but hope was, was seen in On Your Left. <laughs> Thanks, <I> appreciate that. <laughs> but in a far greater way, even if you've got this movie spoiled in your mind, right? In a far greater way than even that. In the book of Joel, in the midst of great destruction, because not even the Avengers could withstand, right? Like who can endure it? Verse 11, who can withstand the day of the Lord? Hope is seen in two words, and the Lord says, even now. In the midst of a people that were comfortable in their sin, the Lord says, even now. This wasn't the man, Joel, rising up and saying, wait, I've, I've got a way. I found out. For no man could find a way. It was God himself who made a way. Even in the midst of when, when the sinful people were living, he looked down and said, even Even now. In the midst of the promise that the Lord would judge the living and the dead, God said, nope, even even now. In the midst of your life, wherever you are, whatever you've done and whatever you're doing right now, God says, even now. And this is what he says. He doesn't stop with those two words. He's got a full declaration. Look at verse 12. He says, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. He says, turn to me with everything that you are. God is telling his people that even in the midst of their sin, he has compassion on them. And even when they're rebellious, God is providing a means for redemption. God is calling his people to respond in repentance. Now, repentance carries with it this idea of turning. God, God is calling and saying, people, I want you to turn to me. They were facing this way towards what they wanted, doing what was right in their own hearts. And God said, no, this is not the way. I want you to turn and follow me. I want you to come to me with repentance. And this is not just some new concept that Joel came up with, nor even in the Old Testament. We see it everywhere in Scripture. God, in his grace, actually outlined this kind of repentance all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In this passage of warning and promise, God says that in repentance, his people would search for the Lord, your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. We find true repentance when we seek God with all of our heart. But notice that both in Deuteronomy and in Joel, it specifies that we must repent with our whole heart. See, God knew that we are prone to try and repent without submitting everything to the Lord. And this discipline of repentance and turning was manifested in many outward ways in the Old Testament. And we see it kind of displayed here in Joel. In chapter one, we saw these actions like dressing in sackcloth, like weeping, fasting, and even tearing their clothes. And yet God knew that we would be tempted to carry out these steps the actions of repentance to get a desired effect without truly repenting in our hearts. Growing up in North Carolina, I think it was a a requirement that I watched the Andy Griffith show. So this reminds me of a great episode of the Andy Griffith show. Okay. So Opie, Andy's child, has met this new kid in town, the kid's from Raleigh, and the kid just gets whatever he wants. And this new kid begins to tell Opie, like, here's what I do. Here's how I manipulate my parents. I, you know, I scream, I hold my breath, throw a tantrum, all these things. Opie said, all right, I'm going to try it out. So he goes to his father and just starts doing these things. And that's it, right? So he starts holding his breath, trying to make his face turn red in front of his dad. And dad's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm holding my breath. He said, well, that's good lung exercise, you know. And then he continues to do these things. He starts stamping his feet, starts screaming. And he starts, like, throwing a tantrum on the ground. And then Andy asks him, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm throwing a tantrum. He's like, well, don't get your clothes dirty, right? There was no response. The desired response was not received because Obi was just doing the things, hoping to get something. Andy was never going to let him do it anyway, right? But, like, Obi was just doing these things that the kid had told him to do, but Andy knew, like, he's just, he's just doing the actions. And God knew that we have these same kind of tendencies. The voice of prayer without our hearts. We have the tendency to repent in our words, but not with our whole heart. So he addresses it even here in his word and says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. God wants the internal reality to match the external indication. Rather than simply doing the outward action of repentance and tearing clothes, God says, I want all of your heart. God says, I want all of you. He doesn't want this section of your heart as you give another part of it to something else. God says, don't simply give me lip service. He says, give me all that you are and return to the Lord, your God. Calvin put it this way, moderate repentance will not do. Don't just come to the church building, come to God as your refuge. Don't just put money in the offering bucket or text to give, but pour out your life as an offering to the Lord. I'll just lift your hands as we sing, but lift your eyes to the one that gives you a reason to sing. And lift your eyes to the one that is good. Like Joel says in verse 13 in chapter 2, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Not only that, but even in verse 14, we see that he will relent and leave a blessing behind. He doesn't only show mercy, which is not giving us the what our sins deserve, which is death, but he shows us grace as well, giving us a blessing, which is eternal life, just with him. And these words are echoed in Psalm 103, where it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. But though God didn't repay us according to our sins, there is one who paid the price for our iniquity. There is one who himself bore our sicknesses and he carried out our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, Afflicted. There is one who himself suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. There is one who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And there is one who was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds, and his name is Jesus, Jesus Christ the crucified. Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary, but was raised on Sunday. And Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Jesus. This is, he's the one who makes it possible for us to actually do what Joel is calling us to do and respond in repentance with our whole heart, knowing that our God is just. He, he doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He's already dealt with our sin in Christ so that when we do tear our hearts, when we do give God all that we are, God looks on favor with us because Christ took on our punishment. And God relents from sinning disaster because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sinning disaster. And so we are called to mourn over the weight of our sin. And we are called to respond in repentance. And finally, we see that we are called to even rest in restoration. Look at Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 25. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame." Verse 28, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls. So in these verses, even after the destruction of the land and the period of mourning before the Lord, after the repentance of the people, God makes a promise of restoration. Look at verse 25 again. He said, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the great army that he sent. What once was destroyed has now been restored. What once was dead is now alive, and the Lord's judgment on his people, his discipline on those that he loves is now replaced with blessing. After the period of refinement in the fire, God promises to never again put put shame on his people, and then we come to verse 26. It says, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. God promises to provide for his people again in order that they might worship him, worship God. Because we see in verse 27 that the end of all of this, the goal of our mourning, the goal of our re- repentance and the restoration is that we would know God himself. Look at verse 27. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. The goal of our salvation is God, the goal of our salvation is God himself and that we would know him alone. God promises that we will be. he will be present Israel with us so that our faith is not us striving as hard as we can to get to God, but actually God comes to us. And this is good news, but it doesn't even stop there. After all of this, God continues. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. Not only does God promise to bless and forgive, but he promises to be with his people. He promises to be an escape for his people. He promises that the very Spirit of God would dwell within his people. And this, this is almost almost a foreign concept in the Old Testament. In this, this section of Scripture, we see that the Spirit of God really comes on specific people at specific times for a specific purpose. He came on Joshua to lead the people of God in the promised land. He came on the judges for deliverance. He came on King Saul, and he came on David. And he came on the prophets. Yet we also see that the Spirit left some individuals. He left Samson for a time in his sin. He left Saul when Saul's heart drifted away from God in disobedience. Yet in this passage, God says he will pour out his Spirit on all. God's presence would truly be in all of his people. Not just in a figure of speech, but his spirit would be with them. Churches, this is the final goal. And this is actually somewhat contrary to how I think about salvation. And I think how we all sometimes think about our salvation in Christ. We often think about the benefits that it provides, right? We often think about salvation and we say we can, we can go to heaven when we die. We can have a changed life. We can have peace in our soul. We have wisdom that only comes from God. And yes, God provides all of those things in Christ. But too often our motivations for going to God is to receive those benefits and not God himself. But he is our greatest need. And he is the one that we receive. He alone satisfies our truest longings. He is the greatest gift we could receive. And we go to God in order that we might receive God himself. And he promises that his spirit will come both sons and daughters, male and female alike, both old men and young men, senior adults, empty nesters, the middle aged, single and married, young couples, young adults, teenagers, graduates, students, preteens and children. God said his spirit would come and he doesn't even stop there. He continues to go. Look at verse 29. I'll even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. No one is excluded from this offer of the spirit of God. Church, I pray that we would grasp the height and the depth of God's love that we even see in the in the book of Joel, that we ultimately see in Christ, knowing that as, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12:13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews, Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. And we see this promise fulfilled. God makes this promise here in Joel, but we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. Today, in fact, since it's the seventh day since Easter, Christians all over the world celebrate Pentecost because of the fulfillment of what we see in Joel in Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God come on believers, fulfilling what Joel had said and the promise was fulfilled. Here, the, the Spirit enabled them to speak in tongues that were foreign to them, that the gospel might be preached, but many misunderstood what was happening. And so they began to ask how they were able to do these things, thinking that they were drunk. And so Peter, the apostle, got up and said, it's 9 a.m., so they're fine. But the Spirit of God had actually come because of what Joel had said in Joel chapter 2, that God would pour out his Spirit on his people. And even further along, it doesn't just stop in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 10, where Peter is struggling with welcoming the Gentiles into the faith because they were not of the Jewish tradition, God led him through through dreams and even through a voice to welcome them in and preach the gospel to them. And so as he did in Acts 10, we see that while Peter was still speaking these words, which is the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. And the Spirit of God even came on Gentiles. God said that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. This is the kind of God that we serve. That promises his repentant people, they will find true rest and in his restoration. That They will find restoration in the fact that we are not only receive the spiritual benefits from God, but we receive God himself. God, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the only holy God dwells in us. And we can rest in the fact that the Spirit of God is no longer far from us in Christ Jesus. No longer do we have to send one man, one priest, into the Holy of Holies to be with God. God is with us in His Spirit. We do not have to say, as it says in Romans, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down? Or who will go into the abyss to bring Christ up? On the contrary, Paul reminds us in Romans that the message message of faith is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And here... As Paul, as he gives us a reminder, he recalls what Joel said in chapter 2 at the end of verse 32. He writes in Romans 10 and says, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, this is the hope that we have in the God that we serve. So our call today is to mourn over our sin, to respond in repentance, and to rest in restoration. And this is something that we need desperately. The hope that we see in the book of Joel is the kind of hope that we need because as we look around our world, we see that the world is broken. As Joel saw in his book, and as we look at our own lives, at our own motivations, the things that we struggle with, as we look at the world around us, we see that something is not right. Like something is broken and it is not what God had designed in his perfect plan. So we look, we see that God created all things good. God, as he even said in his word here, that God desires a true relationship with his people. And yet, because of our own desires, of us turning this way away from God and saying, I want to do things my way, I think my way is better. Because of our sin, we are separated from our God. And yet God, in his gracious love, says, even now, even now, He sent his son, Jesus, into the world who lived not the way that we live. The relationship that Jesus had with God was the exact kind of relationship that he wanted us to have with God. The relationship that he had with man was not the kind of relationship we have with man, but it was a kind of relationship that God had designed for us. And yet because of our sin, Jesus went to the cross and died for us because the Bible tells us that what we get in return for our sin and our rebellion is death. So Jesus took that death himself and died on our behalf and he was buried for three days. He was buried and yet he rose again on the third defeating not only sin but death as well so that we can claim the victory in Christ alone. So he appeared to many and then he ascended to heaven and promised what we see in the book of Joel, what we see in Acts, that the Spirit would come. He ascended and said that the comforter will come, the helper will come. And so that we, as God's people, have the promise of the Holy Spirit, even within us. But Jesus said, I will return one day. This is the day of the Lord. I will return. And you will be with me. And we will be able to grow back into God's design. So even through the Spirit, we are able to grow back into what God has designed for us. This is the hope that we have. And so as we dwell on the gospel, I would ask each of you in this room, whether you have, you know God truly, whether you consider yourself near to God's design, or whether you consider yourself far, I would call you to do what Joel has called us to do today, to mourn over your sin. If you've never thought about the weight of sin in your life, I encourage you to dwell on it, to recognize the weight That we carry based on what Joel has told us. And and believer, I would encourage you as well. I challenge you to dwell and mourn over our sin, to recognize what Christ has done for us. But it doesn't stop there, knowing that God says, even now, turn to me with all your heart, to respond in repentance. So if you've never done that, I'll be available up here. This is a time for prayer where you can make that decision to actually return to God and repent to Him. But even believer, This is a challenge to you today as well, to continually return and repent to the Lord that we might understand what it is to rest in the restoration of God, to have his spirit living within us. So as we do, I invite you to stand. This is the time for you to spend in prayer, to respond as we sing.